Good morning. I'm Arthur Herman, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. I want to welcome you, both those of you who are here live, who defied the cold and our, uh, and our Arctic conditions to come to uh, be here in person, and also to, uh, to welcome our C-SPAN audience uh, for what is the first of a series of seminars that we'll be doing here at Hudson on energy and national security. Um, and uh, I want to also at the same time welcome our panel of guests and experts who are going to uh, talk to us today uh, on the topic of the phenomenon over the last seven months, which you see displayed for you very graphically, by the way, uh, on our PowerPoint slide, which is the uh, falling price of crude oil. Uh, a falling price of crude oil both for, in the case of the United States production, WTI index, as you see here, but also in terms of global prices, talking about what, those, what that price decline, why it happened, what it means now, what it means in the future. Oil price decline. Is it good news, bad news? Good news for who, bad news for who? That's what we're going to talk about, talk about this, after, this morning uh, until noon. Um, the fall of crude oil prices, I think, this is a, in many ways, an historic drop uh, in ways that I think are important to think about. Uh, and one of them is that this has been not only an economic uh, shakeup, but in many ways a kind of cultural shakeup. Uh, this fall in oil prices is something which I think many people have come to realize, if not most have come to realize, was never predicted. This was a, uh, a lesson in how those who deem themselves the predictioneers of future energy prices and future energy supplies can be so wrong. And that's an important economic lesson, certainly, is that the ways in which one calculates the value, the future value of assets is a very tricky business and very difficult to define uh, and, and to understand. The other lesson I think that comes out of this, too, is that it's really jolted the American public out of some key assumptions that used to govern the way in which we thought about energy, one of which was that the price of energy, particularly oil, uh, would always be dear and was always going to get dearer in the long term and in the future. Uh, now, our guests are all going to have views, uh, perhaps differing views, about where oil prices are headed and where they're going. But the one thing we have learned over the last seven months is the degree to which oil prices can go sharply down as well as sharply rise. A lot of America's attitudes and policies regarding energy came at times from the sharp rises in energy and oil prices, which forced important and sometimes even radical policy changes. Now we may be looking at an environment in which sharp drops in oil prices are going to force important, possibly radical, changes in policy. The other ch big change, the other thing that's jolted, I think, Americans out of is for so long, perhaps for 40 years, the belief that America's days as a major energy producer were over, that in the end we were passive spectators to what was going to take place and the forces that really co controlled and directed global energy prices. And what has happened over the last seven months has really focused our attention 
on the degree to which over the last decade the United States has been an emergent major energy producer. Some might even argue in some ways uh, an emergent swing producer from the point of view of shale revolution, shale oil, shale gas, the changes that have taken place with regard to the United States' position and of being positioned once again as the world's biggest energy producer uh, are also going to have enormous policy implications and will also be a subject that our three distinguished guests are going to address and talk about. And then there's a third aspect, I think, too, is the way it's jolted us into understanding the degree to which that it's energy, not money, that makes the world go around. Energy. Who controls the sources of energy? Who controls access to it? Who knows how to use it, not only to promote economic growth, but also to enhance national security and even to possibly to deter international threats. That's the link between energy and national security that we're going to be exploring over this series of seminars and that I want to kick off today with our discussion of falling oil prices. It's a distinguished panel. Uh, it's a panel of experts on this subject uh, that I want to bring to bear for you as a way to talk about this important and possibly even historic change in the direction and future of the energy market. The first speaker that we have for this morning is Dov Ziegler. Dov is financial markets economist at Scotia Bank. Uh, he's a former analyst for the Depart Canadian Department of National Defense. Uh, trust me, uh, if there's anything about the Canada energy industry that Dove doesn't know, it's not knowledge. He's MA from uh, Johns Hopkins University. He's a student of the late great uh, Fuad Ajami. Uh, so Dove is someone who has a keen understanding of the relationship between financial markets and the larger geopolitical issues uh, that are involved, particularly in the Middle East, with regard to energy policy uh, and energy markets. And I'll also add, Dove is also uh, vice chair of the Montreal Bach Festival. So we have with us someone who understands the importance of harmonious proportion, not only in financial markets, but also in the musical sphere as well. So I want to, want to welcome Dove and uh, have him speak to you uh, on the economic uh, consequences of this historic oil price drop. Dove? Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Dove Ziegler. I'm here to talk to you today about the disharmonious nature of the global oil market uh, and some recent developments, which you're all aware of, uh, which brought us all here today, which is the precipitous decline in oil prices. And the questions I'm going to try to answer are how we got here, uh, whether or not we can stay here, uh, what the macroeconomic impact of the decline in oil prices uh, will likely be, and then give some concluding thoughts on the kind of new regime that I think we're going to find ourselves in for at least the next you know, 9 to 24 months with respect to the oil market. Uh, to start off with, ask the question, what brought us here? So the North American market has been oversupplied with crude oil 
uh, for the better part of the last three years. The chart that I have up here on the left shows you the d difference between the American oil benchmark, WTI, and oil prices everywhere else in the world. The Brent crude price, which is the predominant seaborne oil price, but also prices for East Siberian slash Pacific Ocean-borne uh, oil, and also oil arriving in China at Daking. Uh, the blue line at the bottom on the left is WTI. And what you see is that American oil prices have been lower than global oil prices pretty much consistently since 2011, when the boom in U.S. oil production commenced. The U.S. has been producing an incremental million barrels per day of oil uh, each year for the last three years, in 2011, in 2012, in 2013, 2014, all had it. 2011 was only half a million, roughly, incremental barrels per day. So this has been upsetting the order of global crude prices. There's always been arbitrage among crude prices in different places, but that arbitrage has grown uh, and to the point where it became extreme. Now, most oil market observers believe that this meant that the United States was going to have an oil price advantage uh, for the foreseeable future, along with a natural gas price advantage. That's uh, shown on the chart on uh, your right uh, over there. Uh, but no one thought that this would weigh precipitously on international oil prices, or at least few did. Of course, what occurred over the last six, seven months is that all oil prices have been dragged lower by the increase in U.S. production. So the question really is, what changed? The first thing that changed was the disposition of global oil supply. Uh, this chart shows you uh, two things. One, a line that has the incremental increase in U.S. oil production in millions of barrels per day. Uh, and then the bars show you unplanned shutdowns of global oil production uh, in Libya, in Iraq, in, uh, in non-OPEC countries, and in Iran. And what you see is that the heightened geopolitical tension and developments in countries as a result of various political developments, whether they are sanction regimes or the political uncertainty and economic uncertainty associated with uh, recent uh, revolutions in the Middle East, uh, caused unplanned shutdowns in production that equaled or exceeded the increase in U.S. oil production. It was almost a race between the two. And the U.S. got ahead in the middle of 2014 when oil prices started to decline very rapidly. That's one factor, but it's only one. Uh, oil is also a financial asset. Uh, the U.S. dollar has been appreciating against pretty much every currency in the world for the last, call it, seven or eight months. This is a result of expected changes in monetary policy in the United States uh, and changes in actual monetary policy in other countries. As interest rates fall elsewhere in the world and interest rates at least stay the same, or expectations for interest rates, and therefore parts of the interest rate complex uh, see rates increasing in the United States, the U.S. dollar becomes more valuable. And oil is denominated in dollars. So if you're a European who is used to seeing an exchange rate of 1.4 euro to the dollar, uh, and now it's 1.12 to the dollar, uh, even though the oil price has fallen, it hasn't fallen in euros by a commensurate amount to the decline in the United States. So part of this is also optic. The drop in oil prices hasn't actually been a drop in oil prices everywhere to the same degree that it has been a drop in oil prices in the United States. Uh, and a final thought that I'd leave you with is that there's also been a global commodity super cycle and a boom in commodity prices of all kinds uh, since pretty much 2006. And that boom picked up in an extraordinary way in late 2007 and in 2008. 
which coincided as well with the start of the global financial crisis. It wasn't perhaps evident to the entire world that we were in the midst of a global financial crisis, uh, but parts of the U.S. mortgage market were already exhibiting all sorts of peculiar financial uh, behavior, and the ramifications in asset markets globally were already being felt in late 07, uh, except in the commodity market. Because there was a very compelling story, which was the rise of the so-called BRICS, in particular uh, China and India, their incremental commodity demand. Uh, and this allowed uh, global investors who had little optimism uh, with respect to investments in, in a whole broad range of asset classes to focus on the one story that they still believed in, uh, namely commodities. And commodity prices around the world went up quite a bit. Now, two things have happened since then. One, uh, recently at least, I, I, you know, knock on wood, the global economy seems to have emerged from at least the worst of the financial crisis. Uh, the European financial crisis that, that went on until really late 2012 uh, is now over. Uh, the American financial crisis, thankfully, was over by the end of 2009. Uh, we now have some distance from it. The economy of the United States is now growing at a decent clip. Jobs are being gained. A lot of the type of economic behavior that we weren't used to seeing during the first five years of the recovery from the crisis, uh, we're now seeing good behavior. And as a result, uh, the, there's a broader spectrum of investable assets, I think. So that's at least limited the financial demand for commodity investment. But that's, that's a hypothesis that's, that can't be proven statistically. So can we stay here is the next question. Well, the data that people are looking at has to do with the cause of the extraordinary increase in U.S. oil production. Uh, obviously, the cause has been an increase in U.S. drilling in the shale areas, a new technology. And as prices have fallen, the deployment of oil rigs has also fallen. And some of the recent upswing in oil prices uh, has been associated with daily announcements, or sorry, weekly announcements of uh, declines in oil rig usage in the United States. So that would tell you that at least possibly uh, American oil production could at least start to slow down in its growth. However, other data that look at the efficiency of oil rigs have actually shown more efficient oil rig usage in a major way since rig usage started to fall, i.e. we're using fewer rigs, but we're producing more oil, uh, and the oil production per rig is going up. What this points to is the technological aspect of the U.S. increase in oil production. Oil production in the U.S. has gone up in large part because of a new technology to produce oil that whose ultimate abilities we're not yet aware of. There aren't shale oil wells that are 7, 10 years old. We don't know what the actual decline rate is for all shale oil. We don't know what the decline rate will be for the most efficient uh, shale oil production. And we're going to find out because the global disposition of supply seems to be even. It doesn't seem as though global oil producers are going to, at least for now, reduce their production. And they're testing to see really what the American oil uh, complex is able to do. I don't think there's a conspiracy behind it. I just think that there's uncertainty. And I think that we're in a period of tremendous price discovery, which is going to be the, the theme of my concluding remarks. Uh, before I get to that, though, just to walk through some of the macroeconomic impact on the United States from this increase in oil prices and for, uh, for, sorry, in oil production and from this decline in oil prices. Well, first, uh, the U.S. trade balance has been getting substantially, substantially narrower with respect to oil. These charts show you uh, the U.S. crude oil, uh, or sorry, petroleum products trade balance uh, in nominal terms. That's the gray line on the chart to your left. And in real terms, that is to say volumes of petroleum products. And what you see is that in volume terms, at least, the U.S. is now importing 
uh, fewer petroleum products than ever before on a net basis. The U.S. is actually exporting refined petroleum products and importing less crude. It's a very important development from an economic standpoint uh, and as well from a, a national balance of payments standpoint. And, and it actually results in GDP numbers looking better. Uh, they look better because as we import fewer things, the uh, minus part of net exports declines. Uh, as well, the U.S. trade balance is less sensitive to oil prices. Oil prices can fluctuate as they may. Uh, however, the U.S. trade balance with respect to oil remains you know, pretty similar. Uh, I'd also say this is a North American phenomenon. It's not just that the U.S. is producing more oil. Uh, Canada and Mexico are also, well, Canada is producing much more oil, and Mexico has had level production, and it could see its production increase based on recent reforms. So this points to how we've actually had an integrated North American increase in production. Uh, so, and the production out of Canada and Mexico should actually be somewhat more stable and less erratic uh, in its coming on and coming off. Uh, from a U.S. consumer perspective, this is just a chart that shows you a regression of the change in the oil price and the change in the quantity of nominal GDP taken up by spending on oil. And what it points to is that as oil prices fall or rise, uh, consumers have more money to spend on something else. This is a good example of social science uh, being used to demonstrate the obvious. Uh, the question is extent. Uh, and, you know, and I think that that's where this can be somewhat useful. Uh, extent seems to be you know, moderate. I think American consumers will be better off. I think that U.S. GDP will be able to have, by my estimates, estimates somewhere between 0.2 to 0.4 more spending to be done. This isn't really a game changer, but it's a good thing. So I want to conclude with those remarks with respect to macroeconomic impact, but it leaves us with a few questions with respect to where we're going and who the winners and losers will be globally. Uh, I didn't talk about budget balances because in the United States, oil revenue, though important, uh, isn't an essential mix in the national budget. That's not true for all countries. Uh, with respect to particularly Russia, uh, with respect to a variety of oil, large oil exporting states in the Middle East, uh, and even some of the United States' neighbors, uh, oil can be a pretty important mix in the tax revenue generating uh, side of national accounts. Uh, another issue that I think bears some uh, thought is the question of how long this can go on. If we're really in a period of price discovery, I think that no one can actually know. It's an important example of how free markets are supposed to operate. A new technology is invented, new supply comes online, uh, and then we get to discover the duration and durability of that supply through price discovery. Now, if we're in a period of price discovery, what I think that means is volatility uh, for the next little while. Uh, and I think that it will be integral uh, to see you know, the extent to which we are able to maintain efficiency uh, and see efficiency maintained in the U.S. oil complex, which is ultimately quite a new thing. There are very few countries that have ever seen their oil production increase by 3 million barrels per day over the course of three years. It's almost unprecedented in the history of global oil production, particularly so with respect to technology. This has not been driven by the discovery of new reservoirs. This has been driven by the discovery of a new technology. Uh, with that in mind, I think that from a policy perspective, at least, we do need to try to think of the oil uh, issues in the United States as as much one uh, of technology as one of just simple, uh, you know, supply of, of oil reservoirs and, uh, and land allotment. So I think these are major issues. I think that we don't really know where this process of price discovery will lead us to, but we're, we're going to be in it for some time. 
And, and I think that with that in mind, these macroeconomic benefits that the United States is you know, reaping with respect to consumers uh, should, should be an important and persevering factor, uh, at least for the next you know, little while. And more importantly, I think that on an investment basis, you know, I don't think that the investment in this new technology is going to stop. Uh, I'll conclude my remarks there and, and pass things on to Anne. Thank you, Dove. Um, when I was thinking about someone who could speak for this panel on issues of the geopolitical impact of the uh, fall in oil prices, the big picture uh, and how it shapes and, and will shape the future of the global energy picture, but also the global economies, uh, the person who sprang to my mind was Ann Corrin. Uh, Anne is a uh, seasoned C-SPAN veteran. She uh, speaks around the country on energy issues and on questions of uh, energy independence and energy security. Uh, she's co-director of the Institute for Analysis of Global Security uh, and is co-author of three books, Energy Security Challenges in the 21st Century, Petropoly, the Collapse of America's Energy Security Paradigm, and Turning Oil into Salt, Energy Independence Through Fuel Choice. She's also Senior Advisor to the U.S. Energy Security Council, whose members include uh, ex-Shell CEO John Hoffmeister, Alan Greenspan, uh, former Secretary of State George Schultz, T. Boone Pickens, uh, former governor and uh, director of the Department of Homeland Security, Tom Ridge, former assistant, former secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, and other assorted Washington heavyweights. Uh, Anne's words carry weight as well as knowledge, in other words. Uh, and it's my great pleasure to introduce you uh, and to uh, present you uh, Anne Corrin. I'm glad to be here, and thank you, Arthur, for organizing this event. I'm going to talk about where we were, where we are, and where we're headed, and what kind of black swans we need to consider as we think about the oil market, and more importantly, the impact of oil's strategic importance on the global economy and on geopolitics, global security writ large. We may think oil prices are low right now, but if we go back to 2001, if we think about what prices looked like before September 11th, they were under $30. So they're not really that low right now. They're just low in relation to $147 barrel oil and the $100 oil that we've gotten used to. And it's very important when we think about oil to understand that what has happened in the United States in terms of shale oil production is fantastic, should be encouraged in every possible way by minimization of regulations that may thwart this kind of exploratory activity and development activity. But it's not enough to be a game changer over the long term when it comes to the oil market. And the reason is that today, just like yesterday, the, uncon the conventional part of the oil market is still dominated by the OPEC cartel. And people may think that OPEC is irrelevant, and we hear that a lot around Washington, but I want to throw some numbers at you and give you a thought exercise 
to make it clear why that's not the case, despite the prices that we're seeing today. So if we go back to 1973, 1973 global population was around 2 billion people. Today it's 7 billion. Global GDP since 1973 has increased by a factor of 14. There were 250 million cars on the road of the world's roadways on the world's roadways then, and there are a billion today. Global demand for oil was 55 million barrels a day then, over 40 years ago, and it's 88 million barrels of oil a day today. But if we look at what OPEC production was in 1973 and what it is today, then we're in for a very large shock. Because remember, OPEC sits on 72% of world conventional oil reserves. That's the oil that's cheapest to lift cheapest to produce. And yet, in 1973, OPEC produced 30 million barrels of oil a day. You would expect with the massive growth in oil demand, the massive growth in population and number of cars on the road and GDP, that OPEC production would have increased, wouldn't you? Today, OPEC produces 28 million barrels of oil a day. This is the fundamental story. OPEC production has not increased, and it's obvious why not. Because OPEC countries have very substantial budgetary obligations. And the input into their budget, their income, is energy sales. And so they need to maintain a particular price of oil to balance their budget. So you may ask, well, if that's the case, why did they allow oil prices to drop so substantially? So let me walk you through a thought exercise. Saudi Arabia today produces around 9 million barrels of oil a day. About a third of that is consumed domestically much more uh, per capita than in other countries simply because uh, oil is very heavily subsidized. Fuel is subsidized in Saudi Arabia, as it is in other OPEC countries. So about a third of that production is consumed domestically, and that leaves about 6 million barrels a day for the export market, for global sales. At $50 a barrel, you're making $300 million a day selling 6 million barrels a day, right? Now, what if you decided to cut production by 3 million barrels a day, which would offset the growth in production in the United States that we've seen over the past several years? Go down to 3 million barrels a day of exports. Does anybody think prices would not go back to above the three-digit level? Well over $100, but let's be conservative and say $100 a barrel. You'd be making exactly the same amount of money. So now we need to ask ourselves, if that's the case, if that's the case, you can sell less oil and make as much or more money, why haven't the Saudis been cutting production? And then we see a number of possible reasons and likely reasons. One is, of course, similar to what happened after the Sinfuels effort and the shift in the United States from an electricity sector that used a large portion of oil to generate electricity uh, to an electricity sector that uses less than 1%, um, one per- the less than 1% of its electricity is generated from oil, we see that uh, the Saudis dropped oil price or find it comfortable to drop oil price in order to undercut the competition. Decades ago, that was the Sinfuels effort. Today, it's the unconventional oil production effort. As Dove said, it remains to be seen what the economics of the shale production effort in the U.S. look like precisely and how much of that production will be knocked off the market at low prices. There are other factors at play. There's no doubt a side benefit to weakening Iran. There's no doubt a side benefit 
to hurting Russia, which supports the Shia, has tended to support the Shia side in the Shia-Sunni conflict. But there's also the factor that Saudi oil is heavy or medium sour oil, meaning it's high sulfur oil, and that refineries that are dedicated to processing heavy sour oil are not the same refineries that are dedicated to processing, for example, the light sweet crude that's produced in the U.S. shale sector for the most part. And so if you offer discounts to developing world consumers, to Asian consumers writ large, so that they become beholden to your type of oil and they build refineries specifically dedicated to processing your type of oil, it's going to be harder for them to switch to somebody else's oil down the line. And so it makes sense to keep the price a bit lower right now so that Asian consumers build up refinery capacity for medium and heavy, sour, sulfur-rich, Saudi-type oil, and you try and guarantee your market down the road when you will be putting on the brakes and sending prices back up. Okay, this is kind of a thinking about the supply and demand side of the, of the market, but there are other factors that we need to think about that I think people don't often like to consider, and that is that the Saudis, the Qataris, and their friends in the Gulf on the Sunni side of the aisle have created a monster. By funding radical Islam throughout the world, they've now created a cancerous growth in the Middle East that has turned on its creators, if you will. They have lost control over their creation. They tried to funnel the anger and aggression of their populations and being controlled by what the population may see as frivolous and wasteful royals towards religious fanaticism. And the result is very clearly seen in ISIS and other related groups. ISIS isn't an isolated phenomenon. Just because you put a label on it doesn't mean it's the only group. I, I don't see any difference between the people that beheaded Daniel Pearl and the people that beheaded Kenji Goto and slaughtered him in cold blood, and the people that burnt alive Muat al-Kasasbe, the Jordanian Royal Air Force pilot. And what we need to think about is that people that are willing to do this and are willing to fly airplanes into buildings and murder 2,977 people and would surely have been willing to murder more, if those people get their hands on weapons that give them the capacity to murder hundreds of thousands or even millions, do you think that they would balk? The answer is clearly no. And what does that have to do with the oil market? It has a lot to do with the oil market because at the end of the day, two-thirds of global conventional oil reserves sit in the Middle East. Again, that's the oil that's cheapest to lift and produce. And in the Middle East, we see a Sunni-Shia conflict that's raging out of control, slowly but surely. We see an intra-Sunni conflict that's raging out of control, with ISIS gaining popularity. We see an enemy that cannot be negotiated with, that cannot be contained, that can only be destroyed. And we don't necessarily see a desire to destroy that enemy, a willingness among the world powers that are capable of doing that to do so. 
And when you think about the fact that the region that the world relies on for oil has so many volatile, dangerous factors that impact its future stability, that impact its ability to continue producing oil for the rest of the world, even though countries do not necessarily import a great deal of oil from the Middle East. We have been reliant on the Middle East for the price of oil, much more so than for the black liquid itself. If you think about it, the United States has never in its history imported more than 15%, that's 1.5% of its oil needs from the Middle East. But it has been OPEC that has determined the price of oil. And so what we import from the Middle East is the price of oil, whether that's a $50 price, whether it's a $100 price, whether it's a $150 price. And if we get to a situation in which Iran gets a nuclear weapon, the Saudis buy a nuclear weapon off the shelf from Pakistan, a nuclear program that they subsidized because they will not tolerate having a Shia power in their vicinity with nuclear capability while they do not, and if we do not think about what that means for non-state actors in the region being able to get their hands on those types of weapons, and what that means for the global economy writ large, then we're being very, very short-sighted. So where we are going forward, this is a very uh, bleak and unpleasant vision, I know. But I think that what is very important to consider is how the United States, Europe, Asia, the growing energy consumers, most importantly in China and India, can utilize the energy resources that the globe has in abundance to make oil a much less strategic commodity and to make these type of unexpected black swan events that can send oil price spiking very, very high, can bring the global economy to its knees, can make them much less relevant, how we can inoculate ourselves, if you will, to a region that we simply cannot control and we simply cannot stabilize no matter how much blood and treasure we may wish to commit to the effort. And I think to that end, what we need to do is focus on the transportation fuel market because oil strategic importance derives from its virtual monopoly over transportation fuel. The fact that almost all of our transportation fuel is petroleum-based means that when oil prices spike, Moving people and goods from one place to another, which is, after all, the engine that moves the global economy, becomes very much more expensive. And that means that every single service and good that we consume becomes a lot more expensive. And so much like years ago, salt was a strategic commodity because it was the only way to preserve food. So wars were fought over salt, and countries chose, in some cases, where to place colonies due to where there was an abundance of salt. Today... Oil is a strategic commodity because it has a virtual monopoly over transportation fuel. Well, unfortunately for us, this virtual monopoly is married to the OPEC cartel. Even though OPEC has suppressed its production capacity to the point that it accounts for less than a third of global production, if we think about what would happen if it were Exxon, Chevron, BP, and Shell that were sitting on 72% of conventional oil reserves, does anybody think prices would be at $50 a barrel today? 
Does anybody think they would be constraining their production to the point that with 72% of world conventional reserves, they only accounted for a third of global supply? No, right? They'd be facing antitrust action if they did that. Prices would probably be $15 a barrel today, or 20 or 10 They'd be much, much, much lower. Assuming, of course, the OPEC countries are not lying about the reserves that they have. We have no way of knowing. We have no way of auditing their reserves. But assuming that the reserves that they claim are the reserves that they have, there's no excuse for constraining their production capacity to that point, except, of course, something that's perfectly rational for them to do, which is to maximize the revenue prospects for their regimes now and in the future, with periodic drops in price to kick the competitors out of the market. So what we need to do, because OPEC, as a collective, acts as a monopolist, essentially, in the oil market, and because oil has a monopoly over transportation fuel, in effect, OPEC acts as a monopolist in the global transportation fuel market. What we need to do is destroy that monopoly position in the global transportation fuel market. It's not enough to expand production of oil in the U.S. and other places. Well, that's fantastic, and it certainly has tremendous trickle-down benefits to local economies. That's not enough to keep prices of transportation fuel down in a long-term and sustainable manner. But if we open the transportation fuel market to fuels that are made from coal, from natural gas from biomass, from other resources, so that these resources can be arbitraged against oil, so that with sufficient capacity expansion and fuels made from non-petroleum resources, we eventually get to to a situation where there's competition over market share in the transportation fuel market. That will drive transportation fuel costs down in a sustainable, long-term manner. And that will make the global economy able to withstand craziness in different parts of the world. We can't negotiate with the evil that is ISIS. Okay? We can't talk them down. We can't do anything to stop their current brutality and murder. And their cohorts, Al-Qaeda and the other, Al-Nusra Front, all the various names, they go under the same ideology. But what we can do is attempt to inoculate ourselves to them even as we work up the will to seek to destroy them eventually. If we don't do that, I guarantee you that we're going to be lulling ourselves into a sense of complacency that prices are low now and everything is good and we can forget about all of the post-9-11 franticness and all of the 2008 $147 a barrel oil franticness and just go back to sleep. I guarantee you we're going to be waking up to a very, very nasty shock down the road if we don't wake up and open our cars to fuel competition. Thanks, and I think I'll move to you, Matt. Thank you, Anne. Um, When I was putting together this panel, um, I decided that the other component we needed was someone to talk about how this drop in oil prices uh, is going to be viewed and embraced by the new GOP Congress. And the person who I thought could give us the most insights into that uh, and also in the way in which the new GOP Congress looks at energy issues generally, um, that person was Matt Leggett. 
Matt is policy counsel for energy, environment, and agriculture for the U.S. Senate GOP Policy Committee, uh, basically the policy steering committee that thinks through the issues that the new Congress will be talking about and the prism through which they see those, see those questions. Uh, Matt is a former staffer for Representative Tim Murphy, who heads the Congressional Natural Gas Caucus uh, and who represents the 18th District in Pennsylvania, which is uh, one of the hubs of America's emergent uh, shale industry. So these are issues, uh, the issue of America as energy producer and the shale revolution are issues that Matt has balanced and contemplated and talked about with uh, members on the Hill uh, and with leading policymakers, um, as well as something which he's been connected with personally through, uh, through, uh, through Representative Murphy's office. He also has a law degree from uh, Vanderbilt University. Um, he's one of the most thoughtful people that I know uh, on the Hill on America's emergent energy issues and ways to address them, ways to address the questions of how America's emergence as, as the leading natural gas and oil producer will have an impact not just in our economy, but also on our national security. And for that reason, I'm very happy and very pleased to introduce you to and to have as our last panelist, Matt Leggett. Thank you, Arthur, and the Hudson Institute for having me today. Um, any opinions I express today are my own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Senate Republican Policy Committee or any Republican senator. Who doesn't like paying $2.24 for a gallon of gasoline? That's today's national average price, down $1.09 from last year. This is a slide of uh, yesterday in Richmond. It, it got as low as $1.99. Low gas prices act as an enormous tax credit distributed directly to every American family that immediately stimulates business activity across the economy. Americans are likely to have as much as $115 billion more in disposable income in 2015 this year. If gasoline averages $2.50 per gallon, a typical family could save $1,100 annually. That's money they can spend on other things. Importantly, low gasoline prices act as a progressive tax cut. They provide pro proportionally greater economic relief to low-income households and senior citizens on fixed incomes. Even better, they do not require a dime of taxpayer money, and no one has to wrestle this tax cut through Congress. Low prices for other petroleum products are also boosting spending power. Diesel, down $1.13 since last year. Residential heating oil, down $1.33. Residential propane, down $1.40. Every dollar consumers save while fueling their cars or heating their homes is one they can use to purchase other goods and services. This is all great news for American consumers, but not everyone is celebrating lower energy prices. 
At $56 per barrel, Brent crude is below break-even prices for many U.S. adversaries. Russia, Iran, and Venezuela need Brent crude oil prices well past $100 per barrel to balance their budgets in 2015. U.S. petroleum product prices have been cut in half in the past eight months, mostly because Brent crude prices have plummeted by 50% during the same time frame. On Monday, Brent crude traded at $57 per barrel. That's $58 less than its peak of $115 in June of last year. Russia needs Brent to trade around $107. Iran needs Brent to rise to $131. Venezuela needs prices to go to $151. Russia derives 68% of its foreign currency earnings from oil exports and around 50% of its annual budget from the oil and gas industry. According to a December 16, 2014 article in the Financial Times, the Russian ruble lurched towards a financial crisis. It has fallen more than 50% since the start of the year, reviving memories of the 1998 crash when Russia defaulted on its domestic debt. Oil accounts for about half of Venezuela's revenues and as much as 75% of Iran's revenues. At today's prices, their economies are also in a tailspin. With oil revenues slashed in half, these countries are less able to pay for government services they need to ensure social order and to maintain regime stability. They are in weaker positions when negotiating with the U.S. and other foreign powers over their military aggression, nuclear ambitions, and other prov provocative positions. At home and abroad, their power correlates with oil markets, and it declines as oil prices fall. At $50 per barrel, U.S. producers face challenging economics bringing WTI crude to market. American energy producers are finding the economics of oil production challenging in today's low-price environment though they remain largely competitive and are not under as much duress as Russia, Venezuela, and Iran. A November 2014 IHS report found 80% of domestic production anticipated in 2015 will break even between $50 and $69 per barrel of WTI. On Monday, WTI crude traded at $53 per barrel. That's $55 less than its peak price of $108 in June of last year. American energy producers are aggressively rep repositioning their operations to better withstand the low-price environment. They are generally delaying capital investment in new wells, shutting down production of higher-cost existing wells. They're refocusing their attention to lower-risk, more economically competitive wells currently being produced in shale oil play sweet spots. As of last Friday, the total number of oil and natural gas drilling rigs actively exploring for developing oil or natural gas fell to 1,456. That's down 17.8% from a year ago, and it's the lowest level in five years. Energy companies are scaling back capital expenditures in 2015. 
This, of course, means layoffs, and they will not just be in the oil patch. Exploration and production companies, equipment manufacturers, hotels, restaurants, transportation, construction, they could all take a hit if this low oil price environment exists. Lower oil prices are in large part a function of booming U.S. oil production, which has increased by 4 million barrels per day over the last six years. To keep up the flow of oil, producers need to reduce their costs. So on the one hand, we have low petroleum product prices that all American consumers celebrate. On the other hand, we also have energy producers who are challenged in a low oil price environment and whose oil we need to keep supply up and prices low. And we have a lot of workers being laid off. How can Washington help? Mostly by getting out of the way. A good place to look for cost savings is reducing the expensive burden of needless regulations and red tape. A short-term snapshot of oil markets the moment prices are low should not be used as an excuse to block long-term energy projects. That would be like deciding to cancel a long-needed bridge repair because one's morning commute was lighter than normal. One, one thing Congress can do, and now the president, is uh, prove energy infrastructure like the Keystone XL pipeline. The Keystone XL pipeline is a long-term energy infrastructure project that would operate well beyond the current low oil price environment. The Senate passed it 62 to 36 after debating and voting on 41 amendments, a few of which were adopted. That was nearly three times the number of amendments that were voted on in all of 2014. Many of those amendments were offered by Democrats, and nine Democrats voted for the legislation. The House passed it 247 to 152, with 29 Democrats voting yes. The pipeline would transport 830,000 barrels of oil per day, including 100,000 from Montana and North Dakota, to market in the most efficient and environmentally responsible way. President Obama has delayed making a decision on this pipeline for more than six years. During that time, the project's costs have increased by 48% from $5.4 billion to $8 billion. This is exactly the kind of unnecessary and burdensome cost that mismanaged energy infrastructure permitting can impose on energy producers. The president should sign legislation approving the Keystone XL pipeline into law immediately. Instead, he will veto it. Open federal lands to oil production. The federal government manages roughly 640 million acres of surface land, approximately 28% of the 2.3 billion acres of land in the United States. The federal estate extends to energy and mineral resources located underground and offshore, including about 700 million onshore acres and 1.7 billion offshore acres. The federal government only leased 2.8% of onshore and offshore federal lands for energy production in fiscal year 2014. This was not by accident. President Obama has utilized designation authorities 
under the National Wilderness Preservation System, the National Wild and Scenic River System, the National Trails System, the Antiquities Act, the Endangered Species Act, and other programs and laws to block energy production on federal lands. This has contributed to crude oil production falling by 6% on federal lands the President controls from 2009 to 2013. By contrast, crude oil production has increased by 61% on state and private lands. Despite his repeated attempts, the President cannot claim credit for America's shale oil revolution and the lower gasoline prices it has brought to consumers. These game-changing developments have happened in spite of his policies, not because of them. I should note, too, that the federal government has great difficulty effectively administering existing federally protected land. The combined maintenance backlog of the four federal land management agencies totals as much as $22.65 billion. We ought to focus on effectively managing existing federally protected land before we designate new ones. We certainly can provide energy producers with greater opportunities to access federal lands for oil and gas production. Provide certainty in energy project permitting. The Bureau of Land Management has a backlog of 3,500 applications for permits to drill on onshore federal oil and gas leases, according to the Department of Interior's Inspector General uh, last year. It took an average of 228 calendar days, or about seven and a half months, to process an APD during fiscal year 2012. States take 80 days or less to process an APD. Like the Keystone XL pipeline, the BLM permitting backlog is another example where permit applications are routinely delayed, adding unnecessary and burdensome costs for energy producers. Last December, the Congress passed, and the President did sign into law, the BLM Permit Processing Improvement Act to address BLM's backlog of APDs. Senator John Barrasso, chairman of the Senate Republican Policy Committee, sponsored the legislation, which six Republicans and six Democrats also co-sponsored. Not only good legislation, but a small example of a bipartisan group of policymakers persuading the President not to veto every energy regulatory reform. We need to stop unnecessary burdensome regulations. On the day before Thanksgiving, the Environmental Protection Agency proposed a new 626-page plus a 575-page appendix ground-level ozone standard of 65 to 70 parts per billion. This would be down from 75 parts per billion established in 2008 by the Bush administration. EPA estimates a 65 ppb standard would impose costs of $15 billion per year on the nation. That's not including California. Another $106 billion per year on California alone after 2025. The National Association of Manufacturers warns this new ozone regulation threatens to be the most expensive ever imposed on industry in America. At 65 ppb, the ozone standard would push large swaths of the country into non-attainment with national ambient air quality standards, force states and localities to curb energy production, refining operations, 
manufacturing development, agricultural operations, and economic growth. Crude oil exports could also help producers shore up the economics of their domestic production by giving them access to foreign markets. This is a topic that is just starting, starting to be discussed. There have been several studies that have projected positive economic benefits to the U.S. if crude oil exports were to occur. Uh, the refining community has some questions about what that policy might mean for them. And uh, certainly on the Hill, it's an issue that will continue to receive increasing attention. These are just some examples of the types of regulatory burdens that can add unnecessary and burdensome costs to energy producers or remove them. There are plenty of others. Proposed hydraulic fracturing rules, planned methane emissions rules, Endangered Species Act listings, national monument designations, the five-year offshore oil and gas leasing plan, just to name a few. The outlook for oil prices is uncertain. You've heard that from both of our uh, previous speakers. One closing point I think cannot be overemphasized. Energy producers and infrastructure developers plan their projects over long-term horizons. The federal government should not implement policies according to short-term snapshots of oil markets. Oil prices are not guaranteed to stay at today's low levels. They could move up if supply falls, demand increases, or both. If OPEC cuts oil production or the Middle East ignites into conflict, supply could fall. If our economic growth picks up speed, demand could increase. In either case, oil prices could rise. On Tuesday, the Energy Information Administration estimated Brent crude will rise from $57 to $75 in 2016, and WTI crude will rise from $55 to $71. On Tuesday, the International Energy Agency said, quote, the price correction will cause the North American supply party to make a pause. It will not bring it to an end. Vaclav Smeal noted in a December 22, 2014 article for the American Enterprise Institute, what is now unfolding is the eighth oil price decline of more than 30% during the past 30 years. Relatively sharp price rises followed those drops. As consumers, we all like low oil and gasoline prices. But there is a lot of uncertainty about the future of oil prices. What we can be sure of is that the more cost-competitive energy producers can operate within a low oil price environment, the more likely they can sustain production that helps bring us those low prices. We have tremendous opportunity to better position our energy producers our energy consumers, our energy policy. Thank you for your attention. I look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Matt. Um, you hearing me okay in the microphone? Yeah. Um, now, this is usually the point in a panel discussion like this in which I exercise my prerogative. It's not a royal prerogative exactly, but it is a sort of host and moderator prerogative of asking the first and very often the most interesting question uh, of my panelists. But you know what? I think in this case, uh, and given our audience, 
I think it actually will be more interesting and maybe even more entertaining if we open up the discussion to questions first. And I'll reserve my final big question for the end uh, if we have any time left. So if you do have questions for any of our panelists, uh, singly or as a group, if you could just uh, go to the micro, uh, raise your hand, stand up. Someone will come to you with a microphone. And if you could just uh, speak into the microphone and then also Please identify yourself and any institutional affiliation you care to disclose. Down here. Uh, Tom Dusterberg from the Aspen Institute. I'd like to ask anybody on the panel their opinion as to um, whether or not the low prices uh, that exist now will uh, decrease uh, future exploration and development outside of the United States. Countries like Mexico, Brazil, um, Canada, Russia all have huge reserves and had plans to increase production. Um, do you have any comments on uh, what we can look for in the future on that? Did everybody catch that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. Well, the early returns are that lo the longer term the project, the more likely it is that whoever was sponsoring it is continuing with it. However, we have started to see some declines in expected capital expenditure uh, in some of the higher-cost jurisdictions, uh, and as well, more caution among explorers. Uh, in the case of Canada, uh, companies have been announcing capital expenditure decreases uh, on the order of between 10 and 25 percent so far. Uh, that's through uh, earnings through the third quarter. Fourth quarter earnings are coming out now, so we're getting a sense of what they're saying. Uh, more globally, uh, I think that a lot of the projects seem to be uh, longer duration types of projects and oftentimes even have some element of state sponsorship. So it, it's really harder to get a handle. But at least in, the in Canada, that's what we've seen. And then in the United States, uh, yeah, what we've seen so far is interesting. We've seen the rig uh, count dropping. Uh, and we've seen similarly uh, declines in capital expenditure. Uh, however, uh, prospects for the companies uh, still remain highly contingent on volatility uh, in the oil price, and it's much more adaptive. The Canadian projects are typically longer-term projects. Uh, the global deep-water projects are definitely longer-term projects. But the shale projects can come, could be started or stopped uh, with tremendous variability. I mean, it's a one- to two-month type of window uh, in order to get them going or uh, in terms of exploration. So that's what's so interesting about this production surge in the United States, that it's highly flexible, highly adaptive, dissimilar to most of the high-cost oil exploration elsewhere in the world. And just to add a data point? Yeah, sure, please. Just to add a quick data point, um, we just saw an announcement from Shell and BP that they already cut spending by $40 billion, and there have been layoffs of around 100,000 people in the industry. Um, so, so companies are definitely reacting to the lower prices and either shutting in production or reducing investment in certain projects. I might add one thing. Dov mentioned in his presentation about the declining rig counts, but how we're still producing a lot of oil despite that uh, because of a lot of technological efficiencies. I think that's a big question mark for a lot of analysts uh, to this question. What kind of technological efficiencies are uh, energy producers going to be able to achieve in this low price environment? to operate at lower prices? Uh, that's a big question mark. I think it'll be a fascinating thing to watch going forward. If I can just add one sure. thing. Yeah. And I'll cite my friend Vikram Rao um, at the Research Triangle Institute in in, uh, in the Carolinas. Um, and, he, and he was a CTO of Halliburton. And uh, he, 
what he says is the, these low prices essentially, in a way, are healthy for the industry because they force uh, a more efficiency in terms of the way technology is utilized, less of a brute force approach, and more an optimization of technology. And they also force the higher marginal cost producers, the less efficient producers, out of the market. So while that's certainly bad for jobs and so on and so forth, in the long run, it may prove to be a better use of technology for the industry and an effective lower cost of production for the industry overall when you look at shale. And there's also, too, if I may just add, there's also a kind of paradoxical relationship between shale producers and conventional producers, including the big oil uh, companies that have been involved in the kinds of projects you're talking about. And that is because the shale producers can react so quickly to changes in prices, either in cutting back in exploration and production or ramping up you know, when the price goes up. What that means is that they have the ability to affect prices and we're going to see this tested out, I think, in the next couple of years, the ability to affect prices and provide, in effect, a kind of price support that larger retail, big producers, conventional producers, will be able to use to their advantage of being able to fund long-term projects, knowing that if price reaches at a certain kind of level, the shale production will wind down and the price will bounce up, as it's already done. Uh, and so we may have a very interesting kind of relationship between shale and product and conventional production with each, in a way, sort of supporting the other's continuing growth and development. Other questions? Here in the front? Hi. Uh, I'm Stefan Grober with Euronews European Television. Um, how do you see the uh, development of the uh, electric car or hybrid car? Do you think, do you fear that low oil prices will slow down the development of these um, vehicles? Well, I, I love what Tesla's been doing because by focusing on the high-end luxury consumer, that gives you a lot of room for charging much higher prices than the average you know, $15,000 or $20,000 car buyer is able to stomach. Um, and so I, I think uh, vehicle electrification is, is a fantastic technology. If, if you've ever driven a Tesla, you know what I'm talking about. These cars are just incredible incredible to drive. They're a lot of fun to drive. Um, it's, but when you're looking at spreading into them, there are two questions here. One is the development of the technology, and the second is mo the movement of the technology into the mass market. And that's all about price. That's all about the battery price. That's all about if you're looking at plug-in hybrids as opposed to pure electrics, the price of the uh, hybridization part of the system. Um, I think that there's a lot of room for uh, uh, growth in this sector of the market, but it's going to take a long time. And for that reason, while it's very good to, and we should, applaud the companies that are working on this um, and certainly remove any regulatory barriers that stand in their way in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, it's important not to focus as on electrification as the sole option for, trans for the transportation fuel market. And if we look at low-hanging fruit, the low-hanging fruit today, I would say, is actually liquid fuel choice. Because if you look at liquid fuels made from coal, from natural gas, from biomass, and here I'm thinking of alcohol fuels, not synthetic petroleum products, but alcohol fuels like methanol, for example, which in China has been increasing at a phenomenal rate, methanol from coal. The U.S., we have a lot of low-cost natural gas and an industry that really wants to build up demand for that gas. 
And if we look at the vehicle side cost, and we look at under $100 extra for an automaker to open a car to fuel competition, to liquid fuel competition. So the car can use not just gasoline, but also alcohols made from coal, from natural gas, from biomass. And if we move, if we look at how we can expect the market to move going forward, assuming that we remove regulatory barriers to fuel competition, so that automakers have a strong incentive to open their fleets to fuel choice-enabling vehicles, then we can expect that we will first see a lot of gasoline, ethanol, methanol, flex fuel vehicles, and down the road, as battery costs go down, we'll see more flex fuel plug-in hybrid vehicles, and certainly it's a big market with lots of different applications. There's always going to be room for pure electrics as well. I, not mentioning other options doesn't mean, like CNG doesn't mean I don't think they're good. I'm just focusing on these two examples. Okay, I'm going to take your question, and I'm going to re- serve it up to Matt, and that is, Matt, the degree to which a lot of the growth in uh, electric automobiles uh, in this country has been sustained by, one, subsidies, but also by tax incentives. I think of Tesla being a classic example of that. What's the mood right now among GOP Congress with sustaining those kinds of incentives uh, in regard to electrification? And what do you foresee would be the impact? Forget about just the issue of, of, of lower oil prices, but, but the other impact, and that is the way in which these kinds of subsidies and incentives have really put, pushed that market forward. Well, I think, uh, first of all, um, certainly the Republican conference is interested in an all-of-the-above energy strategy, including uh, technologies like electric vehicles. We have uh, some members of our Congress that are real leaders uh, on uh, electric vehicles, specifically others that are more interested in natural gas vehicles. Uh, so there's a really healthy debate within our conference as, you know, to what vehicle technology should like, look like going forward. Uh, I think taking a step back uh, and just looking at the government's role in these types of policies, uh, certainly our conference and quite a few Democrats as well, are more comfortable focusing on the research and development aspects of, of any of these types of technologies. Um, when you get into the commercial deployment of it and you use government resources to incentivize that commercial deployment, uh, you have a lot of people who, who become concerned with uh, you know, capture of federal agencies, with picking winners and losers, uh, with forcing technologies uh, into the commercial space that aren't yet ready uh, for the commercial space. Um, I think a lot of people agree that um, one of the major innovations that, that can not only help electric vehicles but renewables is energy storage, battery technology. Uh, more needs to be done on that front. Um, and there, there was an interesting report uh, maybe last year uh, by ITIF that, um, the, that policymakers should – focus less on commercial deployment and more on research and development. And this is coming from a group that typically would be for commercial deployment policies. Um, so I thought that was an interesting shift maybe on, uh, you know, the more democratic side of the aisle, or at least from a think tank. Um, and um, I, I would suspect that Senator Murkowski, who's the Energy Committee chairwoman, uh, you know, will um, certainly be looking at policies focused on research and development in particular. She's sort of promoted those in the past.
probably will uh, in the future. And um, that's where I'd look for action on our side. Can I add one quick comment? Sure. You know, if you're buying a $100,000 Tesla, a tax credit isn't going to make that much of a difference for you. It might be nice. <laughs> but if you cared all that much about the tax credit, you'd ask for a less, less nice stereo on your car or, you know, a less expensive paint job or, or something like that. So I think for, for by focusing on the higher end of, cons of, of, of the market, you make yourself more immune to... Mm. And also to changes in the tax credit. Yeah. It's, it's a very good point. Arthur, one, one other thing I might add. Uh, these discussions on Capitol Hill... Um, also, there's a debate about how to do them, whether to do them in a targeted way or not. Um, obviously, a lot of people would like to get fundamental tax reform done. Do you do, you know, address tax credits for electric vehicles, for example, within the context of a larger fundamental tax reform package? Do you do it, you know, sort of as a rifle shot approach? That's another question, you know, for all of these types of techno technologies when the government's looking at tax credits for them. More questions? Thanks. Uh, Abe Shulsky from uh, Hudson. Uh, some people have argued that given the ability of the uh, shale oil producers to c um, come into the market relatively quickly because they don't, you know, take, doesn't take two, three years to get something uh, going like it does with the deep sea drilling, for instance, but also to exit relatively quickly because um, their, uh, their wells are uh, shorter-lived, and if you don't keep reinvesting, you're going to draw down your production. That, all of that taken together implies that for the future, we should see much more stable oil prices and that some of the uh, things that we've seen in the past of these very rapid swings in, in, in oil because of the inelasticities of uh, supply uh, won't won't be characteristic of the oil market in the future, and I was just wondering what the panelists thought of that theory. Sure, uh, I think that that's the hope. Right? The hope is that there's a new and more adaptive oil production system in the United States. Uh, what are some of the caveats? One is that at least thus far, the major participants in that industry, shale oil, have lar largely been smaller countries, and they're highly reliant on financing. Uh, that is not as stable as the financing that's offered to a large global oil company. So the big question is whether or not there will be an ability for at least the financing, exploration, production mechanism that's been operating at a systemic level in the United States for the last number of years to continue in an environment of more volatile prices. TBD. The reason why I try to characterize where we are right now as a moment of tremendous price discovery is because there's actually a brand new oil production system in the United States, the one which you, I think, very ably right now just characterized. And given the fact that the system is only a couple of years old, really, uh, more than a couple, only a number of years old, we really are not certain how it's going to react to the kind of volatility that we've all of a sudden seen in a new price uh, area than had existed when the technology first began to be deployed in a large and meaningful way. So I don't think there really is an answer, but I do think that the hope is that this system that has been operating for the last number of years will continue to and operate in the manner uh, described in the question. So you know, will it? Uh, can't answer. Do I hope it will? Seems as though it's been a good thing thus far, uh, and you know, uh, that's, that's the most I could really offer. Can I, can I? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this question and then we'll give you a shot okay. at it. 
Now, that is a question. We talk about U.S. shale and the shale revolution. We're really talking about two different revolutions, aren't we? We're talking about the oil, of course, in which we think about very much because of its impact, questions about whether these, these price drops have to do with oil with oversupply. But we also have the natural gas shale uh, revolution. Um, and so my question that I'm going to pose, taking Abe's point and opening it up, and I'm going to ask you first, Anne, is it perhaps the way in which the shale revolution will really, in a sense, provide us with a certain kind of cushion with regard to prices, protecting us from large swings up or down? Is the real cushion maybe not in shale production, uh, shale production of oil, but in shale production of natural gas. Mm -hmm. I, I really do think that's the case. I think, in fact, if we do the right things, if we open our cars to fuel competition, natural gas, the, the shale production of natural gas could be the game changer in the global oil market, in a way, because right now, natural gas goes into the electricity sector, into the chemical industry, and so forth. It, it's not arbitraged against oil. Natural gas is competing against coal. It's competing against nuclear power. We want to force arbitrage between natural gas and oil. We want natural gas prices to rise as oil, as oil prices fall. Okay? And and for that and of course not natural gas prices in Asia which are very high because natural gas prices differ around the world, but I'm looking at natural gas prices here. We want natural gas prices to be able to be used as a lever against oil. And 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 when we think about this, I if we do that, that'll be fantastic for the shale producers. It'll give them a much more incentive to expand production for the shale uh, gas producers, which right now have shut in a lot of dry production, even before prices plummeted. Even a, uh, even a year ago, it wasn't economic to produce a lot of the gas from fields that, that weren't producing wet gas. It just was not economic. So we want to see a lot more of that gas production. For that to happen, you have to have tremendous increase in demand. And for that to happen, you really want to open the transportation fuel market to that gas. And can I just refer back to the earlier question? I really must. We, we can't ignore the motivations and the imperatives of other actors around the world. The Saudis have three quarters of a trillion dollars of cash reserves that they're very uh, uh, steadily running through right now. That's why they can manage to keep these prices lower. That's why they haven't cut, not by half a million barrels a day, not by a million, and certainly not by three million barrels a day. But they like balanced budgets, and they're not going to keep burning through their cash reserves forever once they feel that their goals are accomplished, however we may consider those goals to be. So they have a very strong motivation to keep their heads attached to their necks. To that end, they need to keep subsidizing fuel prices domestically. They need to keep massive salaries going to their government employees and most Saudi uh, citizens work for the government. They need to keep subsidies for, uh, for food and everything else. They need to keep spending lots and lots of money, which means they need a much higher price of oil, as Matt showed us. And so we can't ignore that fact, and we can't just think about the, the, the normal kind of supply and demand dynamics of a purely competitive market, because we're not dealing with a purely competitive market. We're dealing with a market that in which a cartel has a very important and substantial role to play. And the other thing we can't ignore when we think about hoping for stability in this market, we simply cannot ignore the black swans. It would be folly to do that. We can't ignore the fact that the Middle East is the craziest region in the world right now. 
and will likely be for the foreseeable future, for all of our lives and the, the lives of generations to come. Um, I'm going to come back now to, to Dove and Matt on my question. Shale revolution. Is it really two revolutions? Is it really two revolutions? And are we going to see in the process a kind of two-stage pro process in which the oil and the dominance of oil will, will sort of fade and the rise of a natural gas-driven, not just shale revolution, but a natural gas energy economy. Matt, Pennsylvania, Westmoreland County, Allegheny County. <laughs> this was Tim Murphy's home turf. You know that very, very well. What's the, what's the picture? Well, um, and I currently work for Senator John Barrasso from Wyoming, so he has That's oil right. and natural gas. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we view both of these as important fuels. We view them both as a major foundation for our uh, energy economy moving forward. We believe they not only are going to provide domestic benefits, we believe they're going to provide us geopolitical benefits, and we think we should use them uh, for both of those purposes. Um, I think when you're talking about the competition between oil and natural gas, uh, it's an interesting question. I think it will evolve over, over time. One thing I would caution about the optimism of natural gas, and it's not a caution as, as much as it is just a, a, something to consider, uh, there are obviously a lot of uh, competing um, demand centers now for natural gas, and a lot of people, you know, want a piece of natural gas going forward, whether it's uh, the electric sector, the transportation sector, the export sector, uh, manufacturing sector. Um, and, you know, we believe that the market should sort out natural gas's role going forward, uh, but we would, you know, and we do believe that natural gas is expansive enough in the U.S. now that we can probably fill most of those needs uh, without putting too much upward pressure on prices. Uh, but, um, you know, do I see it as a, a replacement for oil, uh, as a transportation fuel? Uh, not anytime soon. That's not anything that, that is being discussed in Congress, for, for sure. I'm going to leave us time for one more Quick question down here in the front. But we want the audience and everybody to sort of catch it. Just hang on one second. And of course, we want to know who you are. Uh, my name is uh, David Babson with the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists. And I just wanted to uh, bring up one thing. We were talking, or Ann was talking about. Um, issues that can't be ignored. And in a long discussion about energy and oil, um, I wanted to ask about um, the influence that environmental considerations, climate change may have on energy policy and the thinking that's going on around energy policy. So, uh, Matt, this is actually more directed at you. And I'm, I'm from Wyoming, so <laughs> you can say hello to... Uh, Senator Barrasso for me, um, is, you know, in, in looking at what you went through here, some of these policies, they tend to be somewhat devoid of, you know, thinking around the influence on the environment. I, how long is the, you know, the GOP going to continue, you know, kind of talking about energy policy, but avoiding looking at the elephant in the room, if you will, which is the continuing accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere and those sorts of things, and what 
are the relationships that need to be considered between policy making and um, environmental stewardship? Well, the, the, the Republican conference, just like the Democratic conference, wants clean air, clean water, clean land. I think everyone can agree on that. Uh, and, you know, we believe that there are environmental regulations in place that provide us with that. Now, the carbon question is a separate question from the criteria pollutant question. Uh, in terms of carbon emissions, there is sort of a wide range of thought within the Republican conference. Uh, you, if you followed the Keystone Pipeline bill, you saw that there were several amendment votes that sort of, you know, demonstrated to varying degrees where people not only on the Republican side but the Democratic side are uh, on, on these issues. Um, in general, I think everyone agrees the climate is changing. Beyond that, um, I think that there's, you know, a difference of opinion in terms of how much man contributes to climate change and how important and urgent it is for us to act. Uh, another point is, should the U.S. act unilaterally or uh, should it not? Um, as it is today, we're acting unilaterally. In fact, the president is acting unilaterally without Congress's consent. Uh, the American people have rejected international climate change policy repeatedly since they rejected President Clinton's BTU tax in the early 90s. Uh, we still don't have consensus on these issues as a, as a public, much less a Congress. Uh, beyond that, um, when you look at the price, the price and the cost to American consumers, American households, energy consumers, manufacturers, uh, economic development, all of these things, um, you know, you have to weigh those with, uh, with the potential benefits of, of carbon emissions reduction strategies. Uh, you have to weigh what are other countries going to do in response to what we're doing. I'm, uh, gonna, I'm sorry, Matt, we're going to wind down. I had promised Anne the last sure. on this, and then we're going we're gonna to wrap up. You know, I just, yeah. came, I just came back from, thank you, I just came back from China. Uh, and if you think about developing Asia, and you understand that developing Asia cares about breathing clean air. It really doesn't care about what the climate's going to be like in 50 years. And when we talk about climate, when Union of Concerned Scientists or others talk about climate, the big bad guy in the room is coal. But if the world tries to stop China or India from using coal, essentially what you're doing is placing the priority of keeping the planet in, a, in stasis over the priority of lifting, allowing hundreds of millions of people to lift themselves out of a poverty that doesn't allow them enough energy to cook two meals a day. I don't think that's right. I think that the lowest cost way to produce electricity around the world in general today is coal, and preventing people from using that because of concerns about the climate down the road is just wrong, and the United States shouldn't have any hand in supporting that. On that uh, uncontroversial <laughs> and a highly ambiguous <laughs> statement. I am going to have to wrap this up. Thank you again, audience, for coming. Thank you also, C-SPAN audience. And let's thank our panel. And from Hudson Institute, uh, thank you very much. and look forward to seeing you again very soon.